Smartcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. What up? Welcome to Or Whatever Movies. I'm your co-host, Iris, and I'm here with my bro. Wesley. And today we are discussing Golden Globe Best Picture Drama Winner, 1917. 1917. Wes? Yep. So I watched 1917. Yeah. I'm a Sam Mendes fan. Yeah. And um, I've got a lot to say about it, but I wanted to hear your recap of the movie to begin with. One Best Picture uh, in a dramatic category. I'm so happy for this movie. That award doesn't mean anything, but still, this was a surprising movie for me. I actually didn't track this movie. I knew that it was a World War I movie. I didn't know Sam Mendes directed it until I started watching it. That's very unusual for me. Wow. And was pleasantly surprised. I was like, oh, Sam Mendes directed this, here we go. Did you know that it was going to be, quote, single shot? No, I did not. Um, someone had mentioned it to me in the past and I kind of glossed over it. Then obviously within the first 30 seconds, you're like, oh, right. 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 Which it becomes a little bit of a form over function or form over story issue for me because these single shot movies, and this one is no exception, seem to be a little bit more plot driven. That is a perfect term. Form over function. So you felt like this was lacking in, in, in that it was plot driven? I think that it was a very simple plot, literally point A to point B. Um, and stuff happens along the way, obviously, but the concept was very simple. And then I just wanted to see if they could execute on it. And you felt like it did because you said you're happy. I did. I'm tipping my hand a little bit here, but I felt that the more convoluted the plot was, it wouldn't have allowed for the kind of camera tricks that they did. Some of the, those sets were built and they were used. They did multiple takes, but for the areas that they were in, they were moving from A to point B and never revisited those areas again. Right. There were no flashbacks. It was completely linear, linear chronological. And so once we were past that part, we never saw it again. Right. Now, I didn't know if it was a blessing or if it was a curse to be watching this movie with an editor because Brian gleefully pointed out every stitch edit, every hidden cut that he thought that he saw. And though I thought it was interesting, it took me out of the movie a little bit. I saw the same things. Uh, I don't know how accurate I was in all of them, but I was definitely watching for them. And there are some obvious ones, like when he fell down the stairs and bumped his head. Right. And then he woke up hours later. But um, it's an interesting concept that I have issues with, but I felt overall it was remarkably effective for this movie in particular. Right. Um, and I can't say the same for other movies. 
like, like Children of Men. Yeah, so this was Alfonso Cuarón's sort of thing. He's done it ad nauseum, starting with Children of Men, and then he did it in Birdman, and then he did it in uh, The Revenant, and he did it in um, Gravity. You know, it was kind of um, Revenant-like, 1917. Was, which is which Kel Kelly continually refers to as the death slog through the snow. And, you know, a war movie, you would expect some tough times on the road, and certainly right. they go through that. But it's hard to watch when you're in that sort of visceral space of being shoulder to shoulder with the soldier or following them, and right. you don't know literally what's around the corner. And the way certain st uh, shots are staged, you can't really see it coming. You know, even if it's for just a second, split second before it happens, sometimes things just enter the frame and happen to these guys. And in that way, it's it's tense and, and moving and involving. Got it. So you want to know what it reminded me of? What's that? So I mean this in the the least kind of insulting way, even though I'm, ref I'm, I'm going to be comparing the movie to a vastly inferior medium. Go. 1917 was basically like playing Call of Duty. Yeah, I actually did make that core. I don't want to steal it from you, but I actually remembered thinking that this perspective was video game-like. Right. There are definitely more interactive elements, and sometimes you can control which way you look, but it was kind of on rails the whole time. It was a unique perspective from a movie, and I say unique not because there have been so many that have preceded it, but which I'm sort of wary to the concept that actually draws me in and I feel is effective uh, as a tool, as a filmmaking tool. You talk, you hear about these guys talk about this style of making movies and how laborious it is and how everything comes down to critical details. And if you stumble or if you miss your mark, that whole thing is shot, that really, really long take, and you have to do it again. Uh, one of the actors talked about rehearsing six months in advance, well, stomping around in a heavy coat in the middle of a field with a script. Um, could that time have been better spent on a movie that didn't have a technical trick? to it that could have they could have just made a better movie in terms of rehearsal refined the script added some plot elements uh, really nailed down the emotion and the sort of uh, camaraderie of two people in a war together thrown into an unusual mission i don't know it's hard to say because i felt like with this kind of very thin storyline um, the the gimmick really worked and if it hadn't more complicated it might not have worked to your point earlier but it really, without say we had the same script and we didn't have the the single shot gimmick, would it have been just a really boring movie? It's interesting that you bring it up because when I watched the movie, there were times that were slow and they were meant to be slow. Obviously, there were bursts of violence and action, and you couldn't see those those things happening. They did a really good job of not telegraphing their uh, you know their the, the bigger heavier scenes. But when that happened and when stuff wasn't firing all around them, that's when I sort of watched the technical aspect. I could sort of shift my attention away and focus on more technical aspects where it was um, something else to focus on. If you're a moviegoer and at all savvy, you know that this is not a seamless piece of cinema, right. how impossible that is. So maybe you have some fun watching the, you know, watching the tricks that they're doing when you're not focused on character or plot or anything like that. Sure. You know, there are a lot of war movies that take place in underground bunker. The Darkest Hour, I think, was almost entirely underground. It was in the middle of World War II. Certainly The King's Speech was in the middle of World War II, where we never got to see any kind of a war. Inglorious Bastards, as we talked about in another episode, was a bunch of guys walking around with World War II as the backdrop, but there were never any battle scenes, except right. for the battles that they created for themselves. 
themselves. 1917 was kind of in that vein where we're following two guys with the war being a backdrop, but it was so beautifully shot. Roger Deakins was the cinematographer on this, and he's just done every movie that I loved, and it was beautiful across the board. I didn't know this until after I saw it, but 1917 was, is one of only two movies that was specifically formatted exclusively for IMAX. So you can go and see IMAX in the giant, not 16 by 9 widescreen, but filling up the entire five-story IMAX screen, which I think would be something to behold, especially stitched together the way that it is, because every shot was, not every shot, so many things were gorgeous. Given yeah. the fact that they had such limitations and how technical the shoot was, the light was a lot of it was natural light yeah but it looked like it was professionally lit in the best way possible yeah. and I can only imagine what it would have been like in a huge IMAX format yeah and the personal perspective in um, the first person perspective lends itself to a lot of suspense mm -hmm. like you kind of never know what's happening right off frame and the character does so you're always like a little bit behind them mm -hmm like when he goes over the waterfall or I think there was another scene where he was running and then he just like slipped so it adds this like element of suspense sure where yeah where you're you're sort of because you can't track their eyeline right where he's running and all of a sudden he jumps and he's airborne and you're it's jarring you're like what's happening right now yeah I can see what you're saying yeah so we talked a lot about the technical aspect of the filmmaking how about the performances Sam Mendes has said that he wanted to cast relative unknowns and I think he did a really good job with that um, honestly I couldn't tell I did see a glimpse I, I saw a still with Benedict Cumberbatch and I thought okay oh, yeah. he's gonna play a pivotal role I didn't know where it was gonna come in where but uh, we're following two guys and I honestly could not tell who the lead was and it was good that I didn't care when things happen to these guys, you don't know who's going to make it, if someone's going to make it, or what's going to happen. So I watched them. Uh, these two guys even didn't know each other very well. The characters didn't know each other. He said, "Why did you? Why did you even choose me?" You know, they were two guys thrown together by circumstance, and I liked that neither one was positioned over the other, uh, and not knowing what was going to happen how well they would look after each other when things got hairy, as they inevitably would. Uh, so I liked the performances. I won't fault either of those guys for everything that they, anything that they did, even being relative newcomers. I think that when recognizable faces came into frame, sure, it was fine. They did their job and they did it admirably. And maybe their star status kind of lent to their importance or their era of, of command or authority. But that's it. That's all Benedict Cumberbatch needed to be there for. Sure. So focusing on those two guys, surrounded by a very capable filmmaker and a really meticulously structured uh, film set, I think they did a really, really good job. Maybe their job was more difficult because they had to act under such constraints while still delivering believable performances, even though they weren't 20-year veterans. You know? Right. So I really, I really appreciated that. Yeah. I didn't know who the, the soldier who died was, but I had seen the other one in Captain Fantastic. And I was really struck by his performance. Captain Marvel? Captain Fantastic. What the hell is Captain Fantastic? With Viggo Mortensen? Nope. Drives the school bus? Nope. What? No. Are you making this movie up? No. This is like Shazam with, uh, with uh, Sinbad, right? I thought it was uh, Shaquille O'Neal. That was Kazam, and everybody, there's a thing where people, thousands of people remember a movie called Shazam with, with Sinbad in the 90s that never existed. Really? Yeah. How is that possible? I don't know, but you're talking about Captain Fantastic with Viggo Mortensen as a school bus driver, a movie I've never heard of. Well, he drives a school bus. I, wouldn't, I didn't say he was a school bus driver. Does he have a sword? Granted, 
Captain Fantastic is probably the most not the most descriptive title, but it's a fantastic it's a great movie. Okay, one of these days I'll put it on the list. That's so random that you haven't seen you've seen everything. Why no, haven't you seen Captain I haven't. Fantastic? I haven't seen any of Taika Waititi's other movies. Haven't seen Captain Fantastic for sure. Never never seen either of those two dudes before in my life. Okay. Well I had seen the the one of them and he mm. was in Captain Fantastic and he, he was he has a fantastic performance. You think that it's really he, he shows some true grit, I guess so to speak, in in that performance. And uh, is that a movie? I said a movie title? Uh-huh. So do 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 I did not know that George McKay would survive, but I knew that Dean Charles Chapman would die. Because after they had gotten out of the mine shaft, um, George turns to Dean and says, "You're gonna get a medal." And he goes, "You think so?" And he like gets all hopeful and stuff. And I was like, "Death knell." <laughs> when anybody ever has something to live for, or they're hopeful about, or they're looking forward to after the war, it's like you. It's like you mark them for death. And guess what? He died like 15 minutes later. Yeah, marked for death. Um, I did not see that coming. I didn't, I didn't assume. I just kind of watched and was like, okay, if you're going to do it, make it believable, and we'll see how these two guys get through it. I'm just like pander to me. I don't, I, I'm not watching. I don't, I'm not trying to stay ahead of it. I was, I, I was just kind of being my peanut gallery commentary um, movie watcher with Brian, and I called it like the moment I, I knew it, and Brian, he was like floored. He was like, how did you know that? But he was trying to be all discreet to not, you know, let me in that I was right. Must be nice. Kelly flat out refused to watch this movie. The sneak watched about 10 minutes of this movie and then flat out refused to watch the rest. <gasps> Why? So I was on my own. Why? He puts his hand inside a dude, a dead one. Yeah, that was kind of funny. Yeah, no, not to the sneak. Really? Yeah. So uh, I had to watch it on my own, but I got to watch it in a seamless, <laughs> seam, uh, in, in one, all the way through, in a single sitting, focused on nothing and nobody else, which is fairly rare. But enjoyable, right? Especially with a yes, movie like this. Yes, really enjoyable. Because I had no expectations for this movie. Again, not until it started rolling did I know that Sam Mendes directed it. Right. So I put on 1917, because we were going to talk about it, and I watched it and was compelled all the way through. Yep. It was, it was compelling, and I was compelled. Yeah. Not only was it compelling, but it was kind of like studded with these little treats for me. Like, we went on this little journey, and we started with Colin Firth, and then we're like, do 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 and then we like get there, and it's like, Benedict Cumberbatch, and I was like, aww. Yeah, and then the British dudes. Dude, and then we go, boop, 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 and then it's like, dude, is that Rob Stark? And it was totally Rob Stark. I don't know who that is. I didn't watch Game of Thrones, sorry. Mads, Mads, Mad, Madden? James Madden? Don't know. Madden? Well, anyway, the... All roads lead to, lead to Rob Stark, and I was very pleased with that. It was like this little journey that just led me to all my favorite British men. Good for you, British men. I didn't know who any of those the two dudes were. They were nobodies, uh, you know, just or, uh, acting on, under high command to deliver a message from Hawkeye A to Hawkeye B. Right. And, and stop the battle and, and the potential lives lost. Um, you know what I couldn't stop thinking about during this movie? What? That there are people out there. Who could not tell the difference between World War One and World War Two? We had all the things in World War One to a lesser degree. We had planes and trains and automobiles, but we never got to see glimpses of life uh, in the early 20th century. We never got to see them outside of the battle. We saw, you know, tank a couple of jeeps, but we were it, still fighting Germans. It could, yeah, and the Huns, which we never got to see. 
uh, but people might not have been able to tell the difference. It was important to Sam Mendes that it was that it was World War One. Absolutely, uh, he made clear that this was based on or inspired by some of the stories that his grandfather told, but that this neither of those characters were meant to be uh, characterizations of his grandfather. Right. I think it's hard to talk about 1917 without at least mentioning Saving Private Ryan and The Revenant. Yeah. Uh, in the past, it seems as though war movies had made a point of brutal graphic violence, and I think that Saving Private Ryan takes the cake. Uh, not a dissimilar camera style. We were very much on the ground at the beach scene at Normandy, which is still regarded as one of the most intense uh, and disturbing battle scenes, especially to veterans who lived through it. Um, 1917 was a different kind of movie. It was more poetic. It wasn't quite Terrence Malick, Thin Red Line, but it was certainly uh, the battles and the gore certainly weren't the focus. It was these two guys just trying to get through it for their brother and for everybody else's brother uh, trying to stay alive. But I think that I went into this movie not terribly excited about it. I sat down, I was willing to give it a shot, said give me what you got, and I was really happy with what I got. So going into another war movie, they could have dropped the ball, and they didn't. It might have been the same kind of ball, but it was handled in a different way that I really liked. Did you see this before or after the Golden Globes? I saw this after the Golden Globes. Wow, so you knew it was Best Picture. Yes, I did. And that didn't color? I'm surprised that would have colored your... Not the Golden Globes. It doesn't matter. Oh, yeah. So, um, yeah, there are a lot of movies that the Golden Globes calls Best Picture that just aren't. You know what a Golden Globe winner is? What? Sweeney Todd, the Demon Barber of Fleet Street. Was that a musical? Yes, they can put that on the cover of the thing. Best Picture, musical or comedy. Um, 1917. This was a movie that carried me all the way through in a way that Once Upon a Time in Hollywood did not. Uh, there were some times that, I, that it definitely ebbed and flowed in a way that I was not bored, but I was less invested at certain times. 1917 it kept me all the way through. So I remember thinking, if I was thinking about what sucked for this movie, what I would come up with. And ultimately what I came up with was the simple plot that you brought up before. Thousands of lives, 1,600 lives are in the balance. It's very warm in here, but it's not warm out there. You two dudes suit up and you go out and you save everybody. We're gonna be here, they're gonna be there. It's all up to you guys and if you don't do it, you die. That's pretty. That's a pretty small outfit to hinge the lives of 1,600 men on. When they would in inevitably encounter other soldiers on their side of the conflict, yeah. I thought, here they come, here's the reserve team yeah. that was dispatched a half an hour after them, told to follow them, and if anything happens, that's one pitfall that you can avoid and keep this train moving. Yeah. The idea that they would just send two dudes because of the tenuous uh, thread that one of them has a brother yeah. over there was pretty unrealistic to me. Yeah, I was like, where are the reserves? Where is the relay where you hand off the baton? Right. Once their mission was known, like to the dudes on the um, truck where he got a lift. Yeah. Like, where was the camaraderie like, hey dude, here's a sandwich, good luck. Right, they did tell him good luck, but they were like, you're going that way, we're going this way, so best of luck with that thing and saving 1,600 men. Yeah. Couldn't dispatch anyone, um, couldn't help in any way. As a matter of fact, they, they got into a, he got into a heated battle with a sniper, not 10 seconds from leaving that truck. They're gone, we can't rely on them. So 
I liked that we were following just a couple of guys, kept it very relatable, kept it very grounded. But when they did come across other other participants in this this conflict, uh, I was just sort of like, okay, here's a downtime where nothing big is going to happen. It, they were just way stations that were taking away from the the real story, which was these two dudes on their mission. Beyond that, nobody else was willing to help. Which right, is a little bit weird. I, I, I noticed this too, and then Brian was like, well, there, nobody has resources, nobody has extra men, everyone's got a mission. Like, this is their, I don't know, kind of cross to bear. Yeah, I guess. But still, if I were Colin Firth, I could have spared another couple of dudes to give it a shot too, in case the A-team didn't work out. That's true. Maybe there was. Maybe there was. But they wouldn't have made it. Because Homeboy barely made it. Barely made didn't it. Really, didn't really make it in some ways. You mean because <clears> the first <throat> wave had already gone to battle? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And he was, and he also was going to give up, which I thought was kind of... Did you think he was going to give up? I thought he was going to give up when he got to the circle of singing men. No, I didn't think he was going to get up. That, that part I saw, I understood where he was. He was absolutely at his wit's end, found himself where he needed to be. Where I thought he was going to give up was when he stood up and decided to forsake the cover of the foxhole and just got up and started walking defiantly toward his destination where the captain was. Like, if you're gonna get up, scramble and run. If you're gonna, if you're gonna cast all caution to the wind and make a run for it, run, dude, don't walk. It was very noble and everything, but I was like, run, you idiot. Yeah, well, that was just, you know, the drama of it. Uh. So that was a little bit frustrating. I definitely had some you idiot moments where I was like, eat that. <laughs> Don't give that to the baby. The baby can't eat it. Eat it. You're yeah. hungry. Still, I got no truck with this movie. I thought there was vastly more good than bad. How do you feel? it? I know you don't give any credence to the Golden Globes, but how do you feel it, st it stacks up against the Irishman, Marriage Story, Joker, and the Two Popes? I have to say it was fairly low on my list, not knowing anything about this movie, which I think really helped. Um, it is one of my favorites at this moment. Maybe the movie to beat. Maybe the movie to beat. It might be kind of an obvious choice for um, sort of epic war movies uh, to be in contention for Best Picture. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is a different kind of movie entirely. Um, may have some traction, though. Um, Quentin Tarantino hasn't been recognized in the way that he once was in a while now. Not to say that he's hit a slump, but it's a different enough kind of movie aimed specifically at Hollywood that I think may be really, really effective for him. But 1917, definitely a dark horse and a very, very good one. Yeah, so you think that it might have a chance? I think it might have a chance. If this movie won, I would not at all be disappointed. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty solid. So, what's your rating? This one is totally worth seeing. I would watch this movie again, despite knowing everything that happens, if I could see it a different way, or if I had the chance to just luxuriate in the movie. Uh, I would watch for some of the scenes again, but I would love to see it in five stories, full frame IMAX. I think that would be amazing. They very briefly brought Saving Private Ryan to IMAX and Apollo 13 to IMAX. Those are just larger screens. They weren't formatted that way. To see this movie be formatted and filmed a different way, uh, and projected to fill up the whole screen, I cannot help but think that we missed something when they cropped it for letterbox, for standard letterbox format the way that I saw it. Yeah, this is definitely one of those movies I wouldn't recommend watching on a plane. Yeah. You would really lose something there. Any movie, really. 
No. Any movie that you haven't already seen, I don't think you should watch on a plane for the first time unless it's a bunker movie or thoroughly inconsequential in terms of visuals. I kind of agree. I mean, I tend to watch movies that are favorites or that I've seen before on planes. Like, I think I watched Big Short two times over this holiday on two different flights. Okay. But two free, uninterrupted hours to watch a movie, you can, you can do that for like a romantic comedy. Yeah, okay. All right. So, well, I think it's a good time of year for good movies, and I agree that 1917 was good. I don't think there's, and there, there, I'd be very curious to see who disagreed with that. The sneak. There is a good opportunity for you to tell us how you feel about 1917. You can email us at orwhatevermovies at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail, 818-835-0473. You're not allowed to critique this movie to us if you haven't seen it all the way through. Thank you. Fair enough. So you heard the man speak. You heard me. You heard our episode on 1917. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Today is working for me. Do you believe that for yourself? Hey, I'm Pastor Julie, and I want to empower you through encouragement, inviting you to my podcast, Big Truth Encouragement, where I unpack living a faith-filled life. I created my podcast for the ladies, but gentlemen, you'll gain something too. So I invite you to listen to Big Truth Encouragement on Electricast and any platform where you listen to your podcast. Electricast. Introducing the Deep Leadership Podcast. Leadership is a people business. That's the philosophy of your podcast host, John Rennie. As a former submarine officer who spent 22 years leading businesses in corporate America before starting his own manufacturing business, he knows that leadership matters. Leadership matters. Deep Leadership is real-world, actionable leadership advice from John and his expert guests. Become a leader worth following. Subscribe today. Electric Acid. Electric Acid.